Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler-filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. In any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now Anna and Jay, raise your wands, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Continuous Play's Harry Potter Retrospective. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. We're glad you've joined us here for the second part of our series where we talk about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the 2002 film adapted from, of course, the novel by J.K. Rowling, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, Emma Watson, Richard Harris, Kenneth Branagh, Jason Isaacs, and Robbie Coltrane. This one was made for $100 million, $25 million less than the original one, oddly enough, but it grossed $878 million worldwide, was another major hit in the Harry Potter series. Now, Anna, we talked about last time how we sort of approached Harry Potter, and you and I both wound up renting the first one. Did you see this one in the theaters? Yes, I saw this one in the theaters. All right, I did not. I wound up renting this one again, and what's going to be interesting tonight is I'm going to compare my thoughts the first time I saw it to watching it again for this podcast, because I've only seen this one uh, twice now. And I remember the first time I watched this one, I didn't like it. And I watching it again this time, I, I tried to pick up on the things that were sort of fuzzy for me. But what was your impression of it when you saw it? Well, one of the reasons I think I mentioned before that I didn't start reading the books till the third book. And when this one ended in the theater, I was so anxious to see what happened that I couldn't wait until the next movie came out. So that's when I decided to read the books. And then I got suckered into the books and kept reading them. Before we get going with this any further, though, Anna, we've got to do a plot summary. We'll get through the plot here of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and then we'll talk about our impressions with the film. We are just before the second year of uh, Harry's time with Hogwarts, and of course he's been spending the summer with the Dursleys, who don't have him locked under the stairs anymore, but they essentially do have him locked in his room. Harry then is confronted by a house elf named Dobby, who warns him that he cannot return to Hogwarts because he'll be in grave danger and Dobby goes about a number of ways trying to get Harry in trouble and keep him from attending Hogwarts but as it is Ron Fred and George Weasley arrive in their father's flying car to rescue him and take him back to their home they break him out and then eventually they do get back to the Weasley's home and we meet the rest of the Weasley's including Ron's younger sister Jenny who's about to begin at Hogwarts and as we learn has a bit of a crush on Harry. The uh, rest of the Weasleys actually make it through the platform uh, without trouble to the Hogwarts Express, but of course Ron and 
Harry don't because Dobby gets in their way. They do find a way, though, to reach and follow the train using the flying car. But after the start of the term, Harry starts hearing an ominous voice that no one else hears. And it's soon after that he and uh, Ron and Hermione find a message scrawled on the wall. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air, beware, written in blood. They discover that a number of students and even the caretaker's cat have been petrified. And, of course, there's a lot of rumors going around about what is going on? Legend has it that the Chamber of Secrets can only be opened by the heir of Slytherin House, and it's said to be the home of a monstrous creature that will only obey that heir. Harry, of course, suspects the heir is is Draco Malfoy, his rival at the school. They try to interrogate Malfoy by uh, disguising themselves as uh, his friends using a potion, but they learn he doesn't know who the heir is, and it's not him either. Harry, in his investigations, finds a book with nothing written on it that once belonged to someone named Tom Riddle. And it's through this book Harry sees events that happened 50 years ago when Tom was a student. And Tom's memories incriminate Hagrid as the heir. So over the course of the school year, several more students and even the Gryffindor ghost are found petrified, and Tom Riddle's diary goes missing. Harry and Rod decide to go see Hagrid at his hut, but before they can speak to him, the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, and Lucius Malfoy have arrived. When Ron and Harry get there, the visitors tell Hagrid they are suspending Dumbledore's headmaster and arresting Hagrid under suspicion of having opened the chamber. Before Hagrid's taken away, he tells Ron and Harry to follow the spiders to the Forbidden Forest to discover the truth. They do so, and they meet a creature, a giant spider, thought to have killed a student 50 years ago, but the spider reveals that he is not the monster and that Hagrid is innocent. Ron and Harry find a piece of paper in Hermione's hand that the monster is responsible for the attacks is known as Vasculus, a great, large, serpent-looking creature. looks kind of like a half-dragon, half-snake thing. They go in and find its chamber through a portal in a bathroom. And they see a giant snake skin, so they know they're on the right place. There they learn that Jenny Weasley's also been taken captive, and they find her near lifeless body on the floor. It's there that Tom Riddle, or the memory of Tom Riddle, appears, explaining that he is merely a memory that has been preserved in that diary for 50 years. He goes on to tell Harry that he's taking over Jenny's soul so that he may regain power. It's there that Harry learns that Tom is Slytherin's heir and is actually Lord Voldemort in his teenage form. Riddle sends the creature to kill Harry, but Dumbledore's phoenix attacks and blinds the creature's eyes. The phoenix also drops Harry the sorting hat, in which appears the sword of Godric Gryffindor. And after a terrible battle, Harry impels the creature through the roof of its mouth, killing it, but not before one of the fangs pierces his arm. He appears to be dying from the poison, but the uh, phoenix lands and cries his tears, which heal his wound. He takes out the fang and stabs the diary, which releases all of its energy, sends away the uh, memory of Tom Riddle, and restores Jenny to consciousness. Dumbledore is, retur- is returned to the school and restored in his position. Hagrid is released from his prisoner captivity at Azkaban. And Harry learns from Dumbledore that there was no way he could have been the heir to Slytherin because only a true member of the Gryffindor house could have used the sword of Godric Gryffindor. And that's a basic run of the story of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. This one goes in a lot of different directions. The last one was a big setup. And I think my, my biggest complaint about the movie from the first time I saw it, and it's still here now, is that I, I don't think you could pick up and watch this one not knowing stuff from the first one. I think you really, you had to do movie homework before you saw this one. I agree. And that's one of the things I thought when I saw it this time for watching the, po- for the podcast 
is that it's a true sequel. Literally kind of picks up where the last one left off. And all, and like we said in the first one, it's the setup. You learn all about Hogwarts and how things work there. And you have to take that knowledge into this movie for it to make sense and to understand. Yeah, you do. And, and along the way, we get a lot of the same old characters and we'll get some of those, but we get some new ones too. And we get some insight into some of our new ones. Last podcast, we didn't even talk about Draco Malfoy at all, but he was introduced in the last podcast as sort of this, I always called him the miniature Gordon Gecko. He's, you know, he's got that, that, that haircut and he just looks slick and he's just made out to be evil. And what you learn here in this one is that he and his family are like magic royalty and they really look down upon people like Hermione who come from mixed, uh, you know, um, or who's magical and come from non-magical parents and things like that. They definitely are part of like the class system of magicians and they also resent Harry for his, I guess his fame and notoriety, but but they're a bigger part of this story than the last one. So it's important that we talk about Ma- the Malfoys here a little bit. Like you were saying about um, Richard Harris last time, I love Jason Isaacs. He's the person you always get when you want a um, bad, a British villain. He was the villain in the Patriot. He was one. He was the um, general, yeah. the Redcoats and the Patriot, and he kind of borders on one of the character actors. He always pops up as like this British villain. And I just think he's awesome. And I think with the blonde hair to match Draco's, the long flowing blonde hair and the way he enunciates his words and stuff, I think he just does a wonderful job. And he's only on screen for maybe two or three scenes, but he, they did a very good job of casting for Lucius Malfoy. Oh yeah, he makes a big impression. Yeah, you know, we we bump into him at at Diagon Alley with the rest of the mm-hmm. kids when they're kind of getting Jenny outfitted and stuff like that. And he's, you know, he says some things that kind of let Harry know, you know, I I don't really think you're all that stuff, kid. And mm-hmm. he even makes some allure uh, uh, or allusions to the fact that you think this guy like thinks Voldemort's a good thing. He he's not necessarily against. You know, the, he whose name shall not be spoken. And you mentioned the actor. We got to talk about Tom Felton, too, the kid that plays Draco, because okay. it, it's real hard for kid actors to ever play the heavy and not just seem ridiculous. But I always felt like he really pulled it off. Like you can tell he's the way he is because of his family, his heritage, and especially his father. When you get to see him together, I mean, it's harder to find actors that really look like they go together. But these two look like they are related. They look like father and son. Yeah, and I'm sure the makeup and the hair had a lot, had yeah. a lot to do with it too. And their mannerisms too, like you say, it's not just their looks, but they do look and act like they go together. And on that note, I'd like to preface by saying when I rewatched this in not just the books, but the movies and everything, there is a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot of foreshadowing to the later book, books and the later movies the last two there this the all mo, I, I mean i'm not gonna give specifics but almost everything comes up again yeah and, and that can't be said so much for the third and fourth and even fifth movie but everything in this movie just about comes up in the last two well really three movies because they're doubling up the book but um the everything in this movie comes for is foreshadowing into 
the last couple of books. Well, I think that's that's important to note, too, because this is the shortest book of all the Harry Potter books. And this was the one that was sort of a half idea and was initially going to be a part of something else. And then, you know, through the magic of, of publishing and editing and things, they, they J.K. Rowling decided to expand the story a bit. But even she talks about having a lot of... Well, she had a lot of control and still has a lot of control over these films and how they're done. We mentioned that last time. She was really picky about how they, they put this diary in there and the way they worked with Tom Riddle. Because, you know, we said in the summary, he's the teenage Voldemort and how they use that character. Because at the time, you know, you didn't know what was going to happen. But if you had read it, read the books and, and now having seen all the movies and stuff, you see all this stuff that's going to come back again. There's a lot of important things that happen here. But if you just approach this as if it's the first time you're watching through these movies, and for me, this is it feels like that a lot of times because I haven't seen these a lot. I've probably seen the third one more than any of them, and I, I saw the first one a few times. Uh, like I said, I've only seen this one once before, and I remember watching it again going, gosh, they're jamming a lot of stuff in this, but if I'm if I'm new to this movie, like people were in 2002, I can see why a lot of people had the same reaction I did. Like, I don't really know how to deal with a lot of this. I don't know how to take it because you, you don't know what's important and what's not. There's just so much stuff happening on the screen and so many new characters and so much stuff happening that it's almost overwhelming. And that's surprising coming from the shortest book in the series. That's what I was going to say. Do you think they tried to jam pack too much into this? And why I'm saying this is I do, I am a little Harry Potter geeky, but um, I have a book that I read and it's like an encyclopedia of the Harry Potter books. And it goes, it goes like chapter by chapter explaining what people, obviously people have researched this and enough to publish a book about it. But I had a book and I lent it to my sister-in-law who's even more Harry Potter geeky than I am. And I haven't had it, got it back, but um, it, and it was published between the fourth and fifth book. So not all the books are in it, but anyway, it goes into what she means by this and all her secret meanings and all the details. And one of the li- and one of the lines in the book is that we enjoy the movies and we're not knocking them, but you can't put as much detail that she puts in the book into these two, two and a half hour movies. And, you know, rewatching this, I think that sums this up to a T is that they're trying to cram all the details she puts in a book into this and trying to project it into a movie. And I just really well, don't think you can do that. Well, Steve Clovis, that is the screenwriter for this. When they, when they wrote the first one, we, we talked about how faithful that was to the book. And mm-hmm. this one is also considered incredibly faithful to the book. There's only like one thing they really change, and it's that potion that makes them look like somebody else so they can interrogate Malfoy in, in the, mm-hmm. the, the book. The polyjuice potion. Yeah, in the book, that's a complete transformation, and their voices change and all that stuff. But in the movie, they, they retain their, their speaking tone so the audience will know what's going on, because you can't explain all that. But everything else is, is you know, what you see on screen is on a page in that book. And having read the book, I can remember that now, and I'm like, wow, I'm really amazed by how close to it they stick. Because oftentimes when you're adapting a book, there's just no way to shoot the book exactly the way it goes. And uh, you know, oh, yeah. and, and they're not really taking artistic license by cutting things out, that, but you can tell in this one, they're trying to put everything in it. This one's two and a half hours long. It's a long, or no, it's, it's two hours and 40 minutes long. It's a long movie for a kid's movie series. And again, the kids are growing up, sure, but... 
it's still it's still a kids movie, right? That's a long time to be watching one of these. Oh, yeah. And, and it, I mean, you can feel it too. And there's some things in here that uh, you know are important, but I, I don't know. I, I always question. Like to me, like the whole flying car bit and the tree that beats the snot out of them and stuff are cute things and they're fun things. And things to get an audience engaged, and they're magical and all that. But I don't well, know. Well, the Whomping Willow, you gotta, yeah, you've gotta have that in there. You've got that. You've got, it's. I agree, it's cute. And um, I'll, when we talk about the third one, I'll talk about the special effects. But it's cute. It's a good idea. But it's really imperative to the plot of the third movie. Yeah, but but just for the second movie, you don't know what it's there for. And if you, if we just take this for context of what it is, and if all we knew was what we'd seen in the first one, I just feel like in this one they're they're bombarding me with all of the magic stuff they feel like they can do now because they've gone a year further and you know effects have gotten better and or whatever and, and all that kind of stuff. But that being said, they spent twenty five million dollars less on this one, and I want to tell you. That's uh, you talked about last time how you didn't think the effects held up that well. I'm gonna tell you the Quidditch match in this one looks horrible compared to that first one. I mean, it I, looks so so rear projection. Oh, um, I agree. Actually, I've been watching this one over like three nights, and my husband's been watching it with me, and he, he said, "Oh my God, you're right. The effects in this suck." I was almost with you. I thought that maybe they might have been a little better. In this one, but certainly not much. I think maybe why it was cheaper is that it it costs less money a year later to do the same special effects. Could have been. That's that's a good point. It could have been that, but I'll tell you, I you know the way effects houses work and stuff. If they if they work on a hit movie, I doubt they're going to charge less uh, for oh, yeah. the for the sequel of it. I think they they skimped on something. The practical effects in this look great. The the Whomping Willow looks good, and the flying yeah. car stuff worked, but the stuff where you can tell it's CGI is is pretty weak, and that Quidditch match well, looks bad. It just doesn't well, it doesn't hold up. He also said that Dobby, the house elf, looks yeah. bad. Yeah. He said that it was, and he attributed it to, and he's got an even keener eye than I do, he attributed it to being... 2002 special effects versus 2010 he said he said you can tell how the movements are jerky and they're not as smooth as they would be now yeah and they they've come a long way with motion capture and things since mm-hmm. they i mean you know that would have been i don't know what they used as reference point for it and stuff like that but that nowadays would be a real actor and then they would replace him with something else and they may have done that with with some of that too but you're right he, dobby is a character too i want to talk about him for a minute I I was annoyed with Dobby the first time I watched this movie, and it didn't change the second time. Now, I realize he serves a purpose and is important, and he teaches Harry a lesson about... Because we already said, you know, the Malfoys look down on people that aren't like them as lesser. And Harry's okay. thing is he accepts everyone, and ultimately something he does for Dobby sets Dobby free from having to do Malfoy's bidding, because he's working for Malfoy trying to keep Harry Potter out of Hogwarts. And, and that's what Dobby's purpose is, but I, I just got tired of Dobby on the screen. That opening sequence where he's causing trouble and essentially getting Harry in trouble and, and trying to keep him out of Hogwarts is so frustrating, and maybe it's supposed to be. I think it is because he's just as annoying in the book. <laughs> and he'll... I, he, I don't think he shows up in any more movies, but he shows up in another book, not even as much time as he has shown up in this movie and he is just as annoying he is just as annoying i think he shows up in the fourth book he's just as annoying two books later 
He, and I agree. I didn't find it that annoying the first time I watched this, but when I watched it and then after my husband saying the effects are bad, I kept finding myself trying to look at the effects and the voice and the creature just, yeah, I agree with you. It's just got on my nerves. He is annoying. And I'm, I haven't, like I said, I haven't read this book, but I'm pretty sure I, I I, I would bet one of my children's life on it. He's probably annoying in the book well, too. Uh, well, he was, and I'll I'll confirm that for you. So we we can say that he wasn't very interesting in the book. He, well, he was interesting, but he was it came off as like there's a lot of Dobby in this book. I'm kind of tired of Dobby. Can we get by Dobby here? You know, and I was ready for him to be gone. And then, thankfully, he did exit the story for a bit before he had to come back to it. But he wasn't a new character. I really cared about i'll tell you what i did like though i like seeing where the weasleys live and they kind of live you called it last time it was like they live in a shoe and it is almost like the woman who lived yeah. in a shoe out in the middle it's like they but it's set up so many children she didn't know what to do <laughs> exactly and what did we say about the weasleys last time they're like the harry potter version of the catholic family from Ca- caddyshack right yeah well exactly. th- they're also kind of the country bumpkins of the magic world because they live in the country you know and they're yeah. kind of simple and stuff but you really the thing you get to watch, and I think Daniel Radcliffe does a really good job of this, is you watch his face when he watches that family together and how together they are and how they include him in it. It's something he clearly doesn't have at home and really wishes he had. He, you know, And he said it at the end of the last movie that you know, Hogwarts is home. So these people are really becoming his family. And I really liked the way that scene played out. And I thought it was a, it was a good introduction to those characters, too. Uh, especially Jenny Weasley, who has the crush on him, but she doesn't overplay it. I thought that was really well done. Well, you do forget, you don't forget, we did briefly see her in the first movie. She was the kid who was still staying at home. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Mm Remember? So we briefly saw her in the first movie, but we, we really get introduced to her in this one. And she's, and like I said, that's just more, she plays a big part. She doesn't, she plays a big part later in the books in the last two books and in the last mo- the sixth movie the one they just that came out the one that came out last not the one that's about to come out and she plays a big part in like i said there's so many things in this that you don't see for two or three movies and then all of a sudden they kind of it all kind of comes full circle there's 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 just stuff and so i get this movie is important but it's not necessarily the best one of the bunch it's uh yeah you make a good point it's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on here and they're they're trying to move these people along by the time we actually get him back to hogwarts i really thought that took a long time for them to finally get back to school but i understood why because we weren't going to focus a lot on school except for a couple of of basic things and they they introduce Gilderoy Lockhart as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts. And it's played by Kenneth Branagh, this Irish actor. He's been in a ton of things. He's he's magnificent. He was married to Emma Thompson, too. Yeah, he was married to Emma Thompson, that, and that'll come into play later in the series. He, But he he is often confused for being American because he does a great American accent. But what you're hearing him do here is his European, more natural accent. But I loved him because he's this rock star famous magician but what you find out about him is that he's lied about all of his accomplishments in order to get forward he's the george o'leary for you football fans out there of the harry potter (laughs) world he lied on his resume to get the big job at notre dame you know and that i mean that's really what this guy is but i i loved him because he's 
when Harry gets back, he's got three enemies. One he doesn't know anything about, which is opening up the Chamber of Secrets. The others are the Malfoys, and then this guy goes against him. And once again, the defense against the Dark Arts teacher is clearly not going to be your favorite teacher at Hogwarts. No, no, no. And it's that running joke that's in, I mean, it's in the books, it's in the movies, you can't escape it. It's just this running joke that they get a new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher every year. But um, what I was going to say is, you know who was actually offered the role first but couldn't do it because of a scheduling conflict? No, who was it? Hugh Grant. Oh, wow. That even been better because he's so. I was going to ask yeah. you, would that have been better or worse? I don't. I don't know. See, I like Brana, so it, and he does it so well. I can go with him, but I could see how Hugh Grant could do it because uh, what was he doing, by the way? Two thousand was he picking up hookers on Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> no, that was that was ninety five. Oh, he did a lot in two thousand two. Actually, this from about two thousand one to about two thousand four was his big. Was his big comeback? You know, he didn't okay. do a whole lot between. He did a bunch of cra- crappy stuff between '99 and 2002. He did like Mickey Blue Eyes. That's because he was trying to to recover from the the image stain. But I guess, but he did in 2002. He did about a boy in two weeks' notice, and then the next year he did Love Actually, and then 2004 he did Bridget Jones. Okay, well then he was on his comeback trail. There, I I'll t- I would have liked him in it. I think he would have been funny. And could have pulled off kind of the pompous star part. But I like Kenneth Branagh, too, because he does seem like someone who... I, I don't, He seemed more like a teacher. That uh, Hugh Grant, I would never buy, could teach you anything, except how to dance, maybe. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, you can buy as a, as a professor type, or something like that, who's also got a bit of fame and ego, because he can play all those things. He's such a good Shakespearean actor, he can do all that stuff. I really liked yeah. him. And I like... Say, isn't he more classically trained than Hugh Grant? Of course, all yeah. British. We have established, I think, on this podcast that British people can act and Americans can't. <laughs> well, uh, from from certain points of view, I think we've said that. Yes, but uh, and in certain certain roles, but yeah, but I I liked that. But I liked the character too. I liked Lockhart as a character. He's not necessarily evil so much. He's just narcissistic, which I think yeah. gives him a different kind of edge. Oh, yeah. And he, it's just, I love at the Quidditch thing where Harry breaks his arm and uh, he's like, let me fix it. And Harry's like, no, no, like, please, <laughs> yeah. please don't fix it. And then, then he has to go to the hospital wing and the nurse, nurse is like, wait, she was like, well, fix. She said, I can mend bones in a heartbeat. She said, growing them back is a whole other story. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. And then if you look, look on the face of all from Maggie Smith to Alan Rickman to Richard Harris, all the professors and Dumbledore, um, whenever he says something like, Oh yes, if I had been, you're lucky I didn't get here first, Harry, or something, I would have taken care of that already. They all look at him like, really seriously and then i think and then there's one point where they're dueling where snape just schools them oh yeah and you can tell and that's another thing about the really the only thing you get a snape here is just and that guy ought to be teaching dark arts because he's clearly yeah. so much better than than what he's teaching right now and i like that that was something i kind of missed from this movie was snape played by alan rickman that's what I was, there was only like a few, he only had that one good scene where he was dueling with Lockhart, and 
I kind of, I kind as I was watching it, I was like, you know what? I kind of miss him because he had such a big part in the, he had a pretty important part in the first movie. Yeah. And you, and it makes you wonder how, you know, how important is he? Because if you don't know anything about the series, again, you're just watching these straight and cold. Mm-hmm. You don't know who's coming or going. And then you get Hagrid, who's basically being arrested and going to be sent mm-hmm. to prison. And you learn about the Azkaban, the, the prison for magicians and wizards and all that. And we got to talk about Dumbledore. He's essentially fired in this by this Cornelius Fudge, this minister of magic. I guess it's sort of like the dean of the. Or is it? Are we going back to the evil deans in school again? Are these the, the same no, the same Cornelius, people that fired the Ghostbusters from from Columbia? No, no, no. Cornelius Fudge is the prime minister. Is he's the prime minister of what the prime minister is to Great Britain, or the president is to the United States? The minister of magic is to the wizarding. Okay, see that that is something again. Having only read a couple of the books, I don't know that much of it. It's good to, to know that. But they removed Dumbledore from his position, and mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here wondering. The first time I see this, and it even popped in my head again: Is this it for Dumbledore? Are we going to take out? I mean, are we just robbing Harry of everybody that's on his side now? I mean, did you did you read it that way? Is what I'm asking. No, I assume Dumbledore get back because as we said, they did such a good job in the first movie of setting it up like you said he's not the dean wormer or whatever from animal house he he's this this good educator who has a way with kids and relates to the kids without talking down to them and stuff yeah and so i i just i was like if they got rid of him you know, you you compared him as the Obi Wan. Harry is Luke, and Dumbledore's Obi Wan Kenobi. Well, yeah, this is what and and that's what I thought. I thought, did we just kill Obi Wan in in no, Harry Potter two? I, I never assumed that. I just assumed he'd be. Ba- I just assumed he'd be back. It never faced me when I watched it. Yeah, but maybe that's just me going down that road. But I wondered that, and and it's to note too, and it is really sad. Richard Harris died before this film was released in two thousand and two, and you can tell he's he's quite ill and and is not well in this film his voice is pretty much gone the whole time and it, it it's really sad to watch especially when you know someone died essentially right after they made a movie and, mm-hmm. and that may have also limited the fact of how he's he's in the story and they talk about him a lot but his scenes are sort of few and and you tell they got as much as they could from it when they could and i felt like they they did have to cut a little bit from his performance and and bring other things around, but they still included Dumbledore in the story. I, I want, I'm not saying they, they limited any, but it, you can see the fact that Richard Harris is not well is playing into on the screen. His performance again is very good, even though he is quite ill and sick. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the Chamber of Secrets for a minute and sort of what its purpose is or whatever. It's this cavern deep under the school that's home to this, this basilisk creature. And it was intended originally to purge the school of students that weren't of pure blood or didn't come from magicians. Now, I, what is, I mean, what do you think they're trying to mirror here in, in the world? Because I'm, I'm not as familiar with, you know, British history as I would be, um, American history. I know what our equivalent to that would be. It'd be like segregation in schools, I'd think. But, the thing I immediately thought of was what the what a lot of the root story of Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, is about. This idea of mixing pure blue blood, you know, Europeans with mixed bloods from other parts of the world. Is that what they're talking about again here? Well, I'd like to say this: the 
this is a general, this is probably a stereotype. Okay. But British people are very class conscious. Yeah. They're, 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 they're with their titles. I mean, and, you know, if you put a ma'am or a madam or a sir or a dame in front of an American, we could care less. You know, we're, I mean, and that's what our country's founded on, no matter what you believe, I suppose. But they're very class, they're very class conscious and they're a much older society than we are and stuff. And, you know, they're very class conscious. So you got to understand this is, this is coming from a British standpoint. This is coming from a British standpoint. And I just think that's it. I mean, I have an aunt who's British. She married my uncle who's American and they put on airs is the best way to describe them. They just can't be a good, you know, a good old girl or a good person. They've got to have, you know, they've got to kind of build themselves up and put on airs. And I think that's just part of their culture. And I think they're very, they're very class conscious about, well, you know, this person's royalty and this person is, a, is, because I think it goes back in British history, like, um, actually, you know, Di- Princess Diana, she was a lady before she married Prince Charles. And actually, she had more British blood in her than the royal family had because they married these princes and princesses from other countries. So she was actually more British. She was more pure blood than really the king, <laughs> the future king of England, which is ironic. But they're, they're very class conscious. And I just think that's what I get from British people. And I think it's a general. General, it's a stereotype. I'll quit saying generality because I can't seem to get it out. <laughs> well, but I think it's a stereotype. But I think they're very class conscious. So that's why I think this makes sense to have the mud bloods, the non-magical people and the mixed bloods and, and the, and the pure bloods. Cause British people have a way of putting labels on people like royalty, uh, well, that's, lady. That's an interesting point. And I think that may be the, just the difference in the culture that we're, that I'm not picking up on that, that, but what this is representing, but what it represents in this world is it's a it's a fantastic place to have something evil hiding. Essentially, that's kind of the whole the whole purpose of it. What do you make of the of where it's hidden? That this haunted bathroom of this girl that they call Moaning Myrtle, who died fifty years before, she's actually killed by that same creature. Uh, she haunts that bathroom, and it still works, but nobody goes there because she'll flood it when she gets mad. Uh, I mean, what, I mean, you have two small girls as as children. We've established that on this podcast. And, I mean, can you imagine their temperament being as such? Because that's immediately what I thought of. I'm like, I bet Anna's laughing at that because that sounds like something her kids would do. Yeah, it kind of is. That's kind of what happened right before we started. <laughs> I, I mean, I understand because they get mad, and I understand why. Now I understand why parents are just like, oh no, no, don't upset the apple cart. You know, before I had kids, I'm like, they're crazy. They're just kids. They can't do anything. And it's, it's like the argument I had before this was over a toothbrush. <laughs> it's my toothbrush isn't the right color. And then they go running off and they start slamming doors and crying. And I mean, my kids are preschool and a toddler. So, you know, can you imagine what's, what teenagers do? <laughs> I mean, if this is just a preschooler and a toddler and they're getting upset over a toothbrush, that, you know, can you imagine what a teenager well, does? And now they're getting upset because um, my older one is realizing the younger one 
is wearing her clothes. Oh. <laughs> and even if she can't fit into them, it's, it's, it's like moaning Myrtle. You might as well flood my bath. You might as well flood my bathroom and spit water up out of my toilet. Yeah. You might as well. So I can understand why some girls would want to hang out in there. Yeah. But I did like the character though, because the only way that they're able to get through the passage, and there's a couple of things that happen. We'll talk about in a minute with, with Harry and the snake speech and all that stuff. But the, the only way they get through that is they have to try to relate with her. And, you know, the lesson there, I think, is always that it's the it's the great misunderstood of the things that are unknown that are scariest to teenagers and preteens, especially. That's this group. Right. Because they, they yeah. think they know enough about how things work to understand, you know, right and wrong and evil and bad and all that. But they still haven't figured out the fact that a lot of the things they're afraid of can really be disarmed if they just study and understand them a little bit better. And that goes with people, too. The outcasts are maybe that way because no one ever asks them what happened to them or why you're that way. And that's what they do to sort of disarm her is say, how did you die? What happened to you? And I liked that scene. I thought that was really good. It was. And I think it was a nice touch that she was kind of in the plot instead of like the ghost in the other movies were just kind of there to kind of keep the ambiance of Hogwarts. This one actually was in the plot. And I, like the actress who played her, and she's also in one of Bridget Jones's friends in Bridget Jones's diary. Oh. So, yeah, she's in there. She has, she's one of those people that has a, um, has a, um, very distinguished, distinguishable voice. So if you watch that movie, um, you'll, you'll see, you'll see her in it. But she's, um, I like her. I love Moni Myrtle's voice. I yeah. just, I just love it. I love that kind of high pitched voice in it. And I mean, I think this actress is probably like in her thirties, at least, you know, late twenties, if I'm being good at this point in time. And, and, um, she's playing this teenager so well. Granted, it's in ghost form, but she's, you know, the voice goes with it and everything. And I, I really like it. And I think it's cute. Oh, her name's Shirley Henderson. I'll have to put that in. But she, um, she does such a, she does such a good job of playing a, playing a teenager. And I mean, of course they make her to look with uh, like a teenager with the pigtails and stuff. And they also make her kind of look like you were talking about being an outcast. You know, I think she had glasses and the pigtails and everything. And she kind of looks like an outcast. And she reminded me when I watched it before and then as one of these people who was just miserable in life and she's kind of carried it over into her. She's miserable in afterlife now too. Yeah. So yeah. And then I also thought it was cute. Cause she's still a teenager, obviously, cause that's when she died and she has this like teenage crush on Harry. <laughs> I thought it was so cute. She's always like, well, Harry, you could come visit me anytime and stuff. And you know, it's and that's like, a theme you're starting to see is that the girls are going to like the, and you talk, you called him the jock last time that yeah. the, the girls like the, the jock, <laughs> you know, they just, they yeah. just go for that type of guy. And they starting to play with that a little bit here too. You can tell Ron's like, Hey, what am I chopped liver? You know? <laughs> Cause he's right there yeah. with him in the thick of all of it still. But it, it, yeah. Well, I, I have to say for Ron, for he, I mean, he just took comic relief to the next level yeah. in this movie, yeah. especially with the wand, yeah, the broken wand. with the, <laughs> And everything, like, he was supposed to turn his rat into a water goblet, and it was this furry water goblet with a tail. 
I mean, it's just hilarious. And they kept doing stuff like he'd take his wand out and Hermione be like, no, you can't do it with even a proper wand. And then he tried to do something and Harry's just kind of like, oh, they were doing the cupcakes for Crab and Goyle to get them to take the sleeping potion. And, and Harry's like, uh, Ron, maybe I ought to do that. Yeah. You know, and I, I thought it was a good little comic relief thing. And his, the way his facial expressions are just priceless. He can just contort his face into a lot of different ways. And, and it does work. And I mean, you like, you like him in that. The, the thing, you know, I talked last time about how Hermione didn't really work for me. I didn't really go for Emma Watson's performance and stuff like that. Uh-huh. I liked her a lot better in this one. And even the first time when I said, I, you know, I watched this movie, I didn't really like the, the movie. I liked her better in it because she wasn't as annoyingly brainier and better than the rest of them. You can tell now she's she's grown up a little. She's still really good, but she's also developing into more of her human characteristics. She's got a big crush on Kenneth Branagh's character, and she's she's also someone that that has a you know really takes offense to the idea of being. Uh, you know, called the mud blood or whatever that, you know, she's mm-hmm. muggle born, you know, wizard and, and it bugs her. And you, and she's someone that I think that endears her more to Harry and Ron in this film. They they don't feel as annoyed or threatened by her whole presence and stuff. And I liked her a lot better in this one. Well, I think she, um, I think she had better lines yeah. too. It was ri- written and it it was written better for her. She didn't have such annoying lines. Like I remember in the first one, she said, the ceiling is really enchanted. And I read it in Hogwarts, the history. And it's, you know, it's like that kid in school. Who Knows everything, yeah. You're, yeah, and you're wanting to put off a test. Like, the teacher's like, okay, I can't get to the test this Friday, so we'll take it on Monday. And that one kid's like, oh, well, let's just take it today and get it over with. Because they studied and the rest of the class didn't. And the rest of the class is like, shut up. Either yeah. give me two more days to study. And or, she's still you know. she's still that, though. She's crushed at the end when they cancel all the exams, you know, at the end of the year. Because she's so ready and everyone else clearly is not. Because they've been either petrified or, or fear of being petrified by that creature. So, so. Well, I think she, ha- like you said, she's more endearing. I think, and... Harry and Ron aren't as threatened by her, but I think they have found a way to kind of mesh with her that she's very important and she brings a lot of, of potential and information to the table and she meshes well with them because Ron's kind of the goof off and like Harry's kind of the job. And she's also in actual danger that she actually gets petrified and attacked in uh-huh. this. And that's what, you know, sends Ron and Harry ultimately on the, the ultimate quest to try to find the, the Chamber of Secrets and find its entrance mm-hmm. and get into it. And I, I, we, I said I was going to talk about it in a bit. You know, we learned something about Harry here that he's what they call a parcel tongue, which means he can speak to serpents. And it's this, uh-huh. I mean, it's this real eerie kind of, you know, all this speaking. Yeah, it's like he's hitting. Yeah, but, and he doesn't even know how he's doing it. But that's the tip uh-huh. that everybody thinks, ooh, he's the heir to Slytherin, so it's got to be him who's opening up the Chamber of Secrets because only someone from Slytherin could do that. But, mm-hmm. of course, it turns out not to be the case, but it's just another one of Harry's great talents. And, again, it's this idea that this guy doesn't even have any idea how special he really is. And it's just, it just comes yeah. out of him sort of – it's almost like watching the kid jock who just does things. You're like, how did you do that? Like, I don't know. I just did it. Yeah. And also, though, it does a good job in – at the very end where, where Dumbledore explains to him, it does a very good job of establishing 
that the line between Harry and Voldemort is very thin. Yeah, and, we, and I think we did that in the first movie, too. Remember, we talked about their, their wands or the brother wands of each other, and, and we've already had all that, yeah. And this is kind of the point, the wand thing for the second movie. It's the connection between the two for the second movie. And, I mean, you don't... Real, you don't realize how closely they are. And at the end is when Dumbledore is like, well, when he gave you that scar, some of his powers and abilities actually went into you. And I think it goes back and you can even look back to the first movie and the sorting hat where he said Slytherin or Slytherin or Gryffindor, Slytherin or Gryffindor. And, you know, I think one of the whole things of this series is is Harry gonna go on the good side is Harry gonna go on the bad side and you know I could see why Slytherin or the dark side or the dark side quote unquote <laughs> I guess that might be another story. Well, it, it, it is no yeah. you've hit it you can see why they want him it's the same reason mm-hmm. Darth Vader and the Emperor wanted Luke on their side because they know how powerful he is or how powerful he could be. So I'm I'm starting to think J.K. Rowling just ripped off Star Wars. <laughs> I think I've, I've I've killed it for you now. I've I've now equated Star Wars to this. So uh, <laughs> so know, yeah. I know, but it's like take Star Wars, put it in a British boarding school, and let instead of it being in space and having all this space stuff, let's add magic and wizards. Thank goodness in in the subsequent sequels they didn't add like trade negotiation as part of the Harry Potter oh, series. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a whole other story and a whole other set of podcasts. I've heard people though say that the Harry Potter series is the new generation Star Wars. It it is their Star Wars. And I can and you know, I never thought of that before. I thought, well, they're saying that because of its popularity and the way it works. But when you start examining the stories the way we have in these podcasts, I can see it now. It's so, it's really clear. It's like, you know, that is a big influence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it, I think it works as a story plot. It really moves things forward. And just like in those movies, you have to have this great evil sort of hanging around out there that's always trying to gain power. And I love the way that mm-hmm. Tom Riddle and Voldemort are the same person, the way they work them together. I really, really like that, that little plot twist because I didn't see that coming the first time. I really, I just thought, he wasn't mm-hmm. going to be a part of this story, and then boom, he is the story. Oh yeah, and uh, like all I could say, like I said in the first podcast, I was like, all I'm going to say is you'll see this later. I'm, this is just this out of all the movies, this one has the most foreshadowing. Just so there's just so much foreshadowing that my brain's on overload. I'm like, I can't say this, I can't say that. I'll give it away, but there's just so there's so much and. And I don't think you'll see as much on the next two uh, next two films. I actually think the next two films could kind of stand alone more than this one. But this one is you. The thing about this movie is you are definitely connecting the dots. You, if you are watching the whole series, if you don't watch this movie, you're going to be lost. I, I think it's a good point, and it's a good point to wrap up our podcast here. Anna, we do our popcorn rating system for these films. So what's your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? All right. I'm going to give it a large but no extra butter because, just like I said, you've got to see this movie to connect all the dots. There's, And you might not see it for a couple of movies. You might not see it for two or three, actually. But if you don't watch this movie, you're going to be lost. Is it the best one of the bunch? Eh. 
probably not. Probably as a standalone movie, if you're going to watch only one Harry Potter movie, please don't watch this one. It's probably the worst of all of them, in my opinion. But you've got to watch it or else none of them, it's not going to make sense. Okay, well, I, I agree with you on that. I think you have to see this film, especially we're talking about a series of films here. I'm assuming you've either watched them or you're going to watch them and you're kind of using this podcast as a guide either before or after that, hopefully after, because we're spoiling a lot of it for you. But for those reasons, I think it's necessary, but I don't know that it's something you want to go back to a lot. So I give this a medium popcorn because I think you got to get through it and you need some of it. But I don't, I don't know that it's something you can rewatch over and over. I can watch the first Harry Potter over and over. And if that was all that ever existed in the world of Harry Potter, I'd be okay with it because I liked it. It, it was just a fun movie. And even though it was long, it, everything about it sort of worked. This one is really long and really detailed, and I like a lot of the stuff in it, but the you know the effects don't hold up. That's a sign of the times. That's something we can't really do a lot about. The thing about this one to me is that it's so dense and there's so much in it, it's hard to really keep going back to it. So I think you got to see it once, but re-watching this one, eh, not so much. So I'm going to give it a medium popcorn, but I will say this. And I said at the start that I didn't like this movie the first time I saw it. Watching it again for this podcast, I, I like it a lot better. And I, I think it's also because I know where it's leading and where it's going. But I, I also just liked it more as what it is. But I don't think it's a good standalone. I think we've made it pretty clear in this one. You needed to have seen the first one. And you probably need to hang in there and go see another couple of them afterward if you make it through this one. So it's a medium popcorn for me. Folks, we're just two chapters into our Harry Potter series here. We're glad you've joined us. You can continue to follow us at ContinuousPlayPodcast.com. Click on our movies link there, and you'll see uh, updates on when we have new entries in the Harry Potter series out. You can also visit our archives and see some of our other series. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter from there. And also send us email if you've got questions or comments or want to talk about this. You can send us email on the site there, and we'll be glad to, to get in touch with you. For Anna, I'm Jay. We're glad you joined us. Tune in again next time, Anna, because we're getting ready to go deep in the walls. It's time to go to prison. It's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. For Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Continuous Play. Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com. 